Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, November 17th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Congress averted a government shutdown this week when newly minted House Speaker Mike Johnson put together a bipartisan coalition to pass a bill that funds the government through mid-January. But the same House Republicans who torpedoed Kevin McCarthy's speakership may now be gunning for Johnson, leaving many to wonder if, after just three weeks, the honeymoon is already over. New polls show that Democrats, and especially young Democrats, are having growing reservations about Joe Biden's ability to handle the duties of the presidency. We'll talk about that and about Chris Christie, who made news this week by being the first and only Republican candidate to visit Israel since the start of the war. Joining me on the podcast are Real Clear Politics President and co-founder Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and White House correspondent Phil Wakeman. So, Tom, the Speaker managed to convince 209 Democrats to vote for his short-term spending bill, but he only got 127 of his fellow Republicans to go along. So what happened and how big is this division within the Republican House? Where are the pitchforks? <laughs> Shouldn't they be chasing him through the halls of Congress? Isn't that? <laughs> or at least elbowing him in his kidneys. <laughs> well, that's disputed, Andy. We don't know that that happened. There's no video of it. Um, now, listen, you know, a lot of conservatives were sort of scratching their chins, their heads, <laughs> wondering Okay, what was the, you know, what was all this about for the last few months? I mean, Kevin McCarthy tried to do a deal and it cost him his speakership. Mike Johnson turns around and does a deal with 209 Democrats and it's all cool. It's all good. So I guess, I guess this is his, he he gets a pass. It's the honeymoon. Some, I think on the right are upset about it. Um, Others are biting their lips and tongues. And so I think that's just the the dynamic, but um, I'm not sure he can get away with doing that again. Uh, Obviously, it would depend on the issue, but um, yeah, it was kind of shocking that that's where things ended up, given everything that's gone on in the Republican caucus over the last, you know, two, three months. So, Carl, uh, is the honeymoon over? Not much of a honeymoon to to speak of, really. Tom sounds like he's rooting for government shutdowns. I'm just making an observation. Kevin McCarthy got he got strung up for doing the same thing, right? Listen, well, I wasn't in favor of that. Let's just go through what 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 happened. 127 Republicans voted for this. That's a majority of the conference. So that even fits the ridiculously no the, the ill-named Hastert rule, which you have to have a majority of your own conference to proceed. Uh, and I I'm on record as saying con- Congress should not have any rules named after adjudicated child molesters. That's just my sensibilities, but it fit that rule anyway. And so the, the question is, of the 127 who got to cast this free vote, how many of them really wanted to shut down the government? I suspect seven or eight, Tom, or nine, if you count Matt Gates. I don't know that he risked anything. Apparently, some of this with McCarthy was personal with Kevin McCarthy, but there was no reason to think that the honeymoon's over. I'm seeing this in... in um, among liberal writers who seem to be rooting for an insurrection, another one. The Democrats made this guy speaker. Democrats did that. Eight Republicans and 200 and whatever Democrats voted to get rid of Kevin McCarthy. I don't know who they thought they were going to get. Maybe they thought they were going to get Steve Scalise. Well, they didn't. They got Mike Johnson. He he doesn't want uh, to blow up the House over this, over not funding the government. Every time there's a shutdown, the Republicans the polls show it, they look bad. 
However, having said all that, it's a fractious caucus. And the next thing, I don't know that he's going to be able to finesse, and that's impeachment. That's that's what's coming down the pike. You're, you're now a year, less than a year away from, election, from an election. There is no reason to impeach Joe Biden at this point. If, if good government's your thing, you beat him at the polls. That's how it worked until Bill Clinton was president for 200 years. I think that's where Johnson is, but he's got, that's a tougher thing. The, the, they're going to be divided on, on this. They think, many of them think that Joe Biden and his family are corrupt and in, in the old fashioned way, took, took bribes, took money um, from, and in this case, from foreign governments, foreign governments that aren't friendly to the United States. They, they, they think that, and they, and they don't like being stonewalled about it. They don't like being gaslighted by the media about it. And their idea is that the way you're going to get this information that they want is through impeachment. The, the other point of view is what I said. We're a year away. Let's have an election. I don't know how Mike Chance is going to handle that. And that's, and that's where we'll find out his skills as a, as a speaker, because that's going to take a Herculean effort. Phil, he did say this week that he was all in on impeachment. Uh, and he also endorsed uh, Donald Trump for president. Yeah, I think that Johnson has a good sense of where the GOP caucus is currently. And actually, I was looking through my notes and I came across a editorial board I did with Johnson when he was trying to be the Republican Study Committee chairman back in 2017, 2018. And as much as this guy is a principled conservative, he's also a realist in that he is pragmatic. And he argued back in uh, 2017, when he was trying to become the next Republican study committee chairman, that you had to have compromise. I think that this is exhibit A of the compromise that's going to defend, you know, define his time as speaker. What is notable, and I think Tom mentioned this already, is that uh, all these guys who were hell bent on stringing up McCarthy, on kicking him out of town, and who accomplished that, they gave Johnson a pass. And it certainly wasn't over the principle of the spending because this is a hundred billion dollar uh, honeymoon at least. I mean, you you have Representative Matt Gates who led the uh, the fight on McCarthy's right flank, saying to the press, "Everyone deserves a mulligan." Well, if this was actually about principle, if it was actually about spending, then Gates would have fought much harder and he wouldn't have given Johnson a pass. Meanwhile, conservatives uh, like Representative Chip Roy of Texas who supported McCarthy, you know, they're they're mad as hell with what Johnson has done. They wanted conservative writers. They wanted to have this fight about spending here and now. And frankly, I think that the White House, they know that impeachment is on the horizon. And the White House looks at this two-step CR and they say to themselves, uh, well, this is untested. Publicly, they're they're kind of doubting this a little bit. They're they're opposed a little bit. But um if Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is to be believed. Uh, this is the best option that Democrats were, were going to get. So it's very strange times. But I think the thing that we can say safely is that if we look at this episode as a guide to you know the McCarthy mutiny, one, some of the mutineers weren't really principled. They just didn't like McCarthy. And two, Johnson is um, being serious when he says, look, I believe in compromise. Well, Tom, what about the politics of this? I mean, every House seat is up in November. Slim Republican majority. Is there any worry, among the Republicans at least, that this sort of general disarray and this infighting is going to turn 
voters off to the party. Cable news spent a good part of the midweek focused on this story of whether or not Kevin McCarthy elbowed another Republican in the hallway. <laughs> Tim Burchett. Yeah. And then you had uh, Mark Wayne Mullen. This was in the Senate side. Trying to throw down in a Senate yeah, hearing. Yeah, right. Uh, challenging uh, Sean O'Brien, the Teamsters president, to a MMA uh, fight. Yeah, well, the, Randy, the Washington Post headline, House Republicans devolve into infighting, childish insults. Yeah. So, Tom, what, is, what does it mean politically? Probably not much. Listen, the aforementioned Chip Roy was on the on the floor saying, you know, I saw a clip of him saying, you know, give me one thing that, that I can take back to my constituents that we've done since we've been in Congress. I mean, there is, I think, a general sense that the public likes it when Congress is seen to be functioning and doing its job, not always lurching from crisis to crisis and shut down. That gives, I think, the public anxiety. However, all elections are nationalized these days, right? So, But you know, a lot of these House members, they're going to go back and it's going to be about abortion. It's going to be about Donald Trump. Um, I think those are, are more concerning uh, than being able to go back and say, you know, well, we passed this piece of legislation and I co-sponsored this or, or whatever. That's not as much how it works uh, anymore. Tom, can I ask you a question about that? Okay. That, that's an interesting, I've been thinking about this in a, what you're talking about, but in a slightly different way. Mike Johnson is by all accounts, a very decent guy. You see on the television, you see these interviews, see on our morning Joe, even secular liberal Democrats say, you know, his faith is genuine and the Republicans just seem to like him more than they like Kevin McCarthy. You know, that, that, that Tim Perchette, this Tennessee congressman who whined about being elbowed in the hallway by McCarthy, he did the same thing when that vote came about McCarthy. He, he went around saying that he considered Kevin McCarthy a personal friend, and then but then was undecided on the vote and told the story how he called McCarthy and, and told him he was going to pray on it. We don't know what Kevin McCarthy said to him, I, I can imagine, uh, and it may have even been salty language. But the implication you got was, hey, if you're a friend of mine, why do you have to <laughs> just do it, you know? <laughs> but then the next day, this guy came in before the cameras and said, he didn't respect my faith. You know, I'm so disappointed in him. I'm going to vote against him. Now, this guy may be you know, an unlikely snowflake, you know, <laughs> rough looking congressman from the mountains of Tennessee. But the point I'm making is that Kevin McCarthy had could rub people the wrong way. You know, Mike Johnson wouldn't have responded inappropriately if somebody told him they were going to prey on something. And I guess my question is, can this still work in Washington? Is it is it enough to be a decent guy, a nice guy? Does that help you? I think that there are some incongruencies here within the general vibe of the Republican Party. And that is Republicans, yes, they don't want another shutdown. And they seem to say, we appreciate Speaker Johnson's decency and his civility, almost in language that matches their praise of former Vice President uh, Mike Pence. But Mike Pence is no longer in the race. He's not a leader of the Republican Party. Why is that? I think it is because fundamentally, conservatives, social conservatives, evangelicals, they they don't mind if a politician is of upright, good character, but they want to make certain that that person will throw down on their behalf. There's no evangelical out there who will doubt you know, the personal faith of George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush, but they want someone who's going to go hammer and tongs against the people that they see 
at least in their minds, are attacking them. So Philip has has turned the other cheek, been deleted from the Bible. I missed that. I think you're correct um, in that there's hypocrisy here. But if you look at this in terms of a political question, you know, Trump after office said, what is his most most lasting legacy with the Republican Party? And that is he taught them to fight. And I'm telling you, whenever I go to any of these conservative or social conservative events, forums, they bow their heads during prayer, but then they lose themselves when Trump comes on stage, not because personally he's a good person, but because politically he fights for them. That's why I think this this interesting balance between you know, a very decent House speaker and a very crass uh, Republican frontrunner is so fascinating. Tom, what do you think? I don't know. Name a nice person who's winning headlines and, and you know, like... It's, you know, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman. And, you know, I mean, it's just kind of like, I'm sure there are a lot of nice people in Congress, <laughs> but we never quote them. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, they're just, they don't, maybe it's their niceness that allows them to, you know, they don't, they don't get in some of these bomb throwing matches because they are too civil and therefore they, they don't make news and headlines. On the other hand, you got a guy like Mitt Romney, who's apparently a decent guy, but like, you know, Republicans, they don't like him at all because of his policy. I mean, he's constantly, and this is a former standard bearer of the party and by all accounts, a decent upstanding person, family man, all that stuff. It didn't get him anything in in politics because he chose to constantly attack members of his own party. Well, let's turn to the polls. I want to talk about this uh, Yahoo YouGov poll that came out on Wednesday. Uh, Carl, it showed Trump leading Biden by two points, 44 to 42. 54% of voters say that Biden no longer has, and this is the quote, or the question, the competence to carry out the job of the president. That's up from 41% in June of 2024. 64% say they are concerned about his health and mental acuity. Uh, What do you make of these numbers? And is there anything that the president can do to turn these numbers around? Well, this is an interesting question. And the way you've asked it is interesting, Andy, because this is the one thing, and it goes for all of us, not just Joseph Robinette Biden. This can't get better. He can't get younger. And if he's considered too old now, we're a year away from the election, he'll be a year older. More voters will think what they're already thinking. Okay, how's he going to be in four years? If Gretchen Whitmer or Gavin Newsom, to name two, there, there are other people out there, maybe Sherrod Brown. I, I don't, I don't want to just off the top of my head or somebody outside politics. David Vondrelli had a column in Washington Post this week. He thinks Dwayne Johnson ought to run The Rock. This would be the time to do it. And, and you look at those polls and you say, and you, you could say, if you're a Democrat or an independent, Joe Biden has given his life to public service. You know, if he's running against Donald Trump, I'd work my heart out for him, but I don't think we should risk that as a party. I think, I think, I think we need a younger person and cite his age and cite the polls. I think he's done well. I, I've been saying this last few, since October 7th. I mean, I, I think he's been a strong leader. I think the, the economy is getting better. I think the inflation numbers are good. The employment numbers are good. I, some of the, what pollsters call the fundamentals are working in his favor, but this one thing is not working in his favor, Andy, and it's inexorable. He's eight, he's 80. Tom, you see it that way? Well, he is 80. He is not getting younger. All that is true. I'm not sure how much the fundamentals are working in his favor. I mean, I guess, you know, there's a, what's gone on in the Democratic Party since October 7th is 
pretty significant, a pretty serious rift, mm-hmm. right? You now have the left that is absolutely going bonkers. Um, we had this scene on, was it Wednesday night in front of the DNC headquarters in Washington where these pro, whatever you want to call them, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, you know, yeah. is maybe the more derogatory term, pro-ceasefire, who tried to block the doors and the police showed up and six officers were injured and it was, dare we use the I word, an insurrection? I mean, it was, you know, pretty grim. But I th- look, I think that speaks to the tension that's going on in the Democratic Party right now. And that's part of Biden's problem. Now, will that get solved by next year? Papered over and every everybody will be happy? Maybe. Will, if Donald Trump's the nominee, will that help unify the party and maybe put some of these uh, disagreements aside? Maybe. But listen, we've had, we've had six polls released this week. Not just the YouGov poll. We had Reuters, Quinnipiac, Fox News. I mean, every single one of them uh, had Donald Trump leading Joe Biden by one or two points. You know, Biden's job approval is down in the low 40s again. So it's not a good place to be in for an incumbent president right now. And certainly one when you add on top of that, the age issue, which is a, a serious concern for a lot of voters, not just Republicans, but even some Democrats and a lot of independents. And you can see why the Democrats are kind of hitting the panic button a little bit. Tom, le- Tom, let me a- let me ask you a question about those polls, because I, I, I'm skeptical of them. And I'll, not that the polling is inaccurate. I think it's accurate. But I think sometimes I, I, I first realized this when I was covering Bill Clinton, when his sex scandal broke, that he was having relations with an intern in the Oval Office, an unpaid intern. His job approving shot job approval rating shot up ten points. <laughs> I now I I submit to you almost as a matter of science that having sex with an intern doesn't mean you're doing a better job as president. The only the only thing that explains that is that the voters were sending a message. They didn't want Bill Clinton forced to resign over that. They didn't want him to resign. They didn't want him forced to resign. They didn't want him impeached. Once he was impeached, they didn't want him convicted. They were they were very clear about that. So that's that's the late nineties, and I realized at that time. The voters are smarter than political writers sometimes. People know how the polls are used. Those two numbers to me, Tom, what the two factors, the age that were t- his age, the age problem and his job approval rating, I think those are related. I think the voters are sending the Democratic Party a message. They'd like they'd like an alternative to Biden. I think if that message was rejected by the Democratic Party and by this president and he is the nominee, my guess is his numbers would go back up in this head-to-head against Trump. I, I'm just, I'm not quite buying it. I think the voters are telling us something, and I think we ought to listen. And I think what they're telling us is that, not that they think Joe Biden can't handle the economy or foreign policy, that, but they, they think he, he's just too old to be reelected. Well, Phil, let me ask you about this other poll that I saw this week. This is the New York Times-Siena poll, and it shows that in battleground states, among those 18 to 29, Biden has only a one-point lead over Trump. And that represents a 25-point swing since the 2020 election. Now, no Republican has won a majority of the vote, uh, voters under 30 since 1988. That would have been George W. Bush when he beat Michael Dukakis in a blowout. But what is going on with young voters, especially these young Democratic voters? The White House is taking a closer look. Obviously, they have to shore up that demographic before the next election. And I suspect that if Trump is the nominee, a lot of these numbers will soften. But it was a five o'clock fire alarm for the um, administration. They saw this poll. They um, know that this is not an enviable position to be in. Uh, but you know, Biden has been told 
by everyone from former President Obama to David Axelrod that maybe he shouldn't have run in 2020. They, they've constantly doubted him, questioned whether or not he can get the job done. And I think at this point, he is sort of calloused over and he is uh, primed just to ignore those indicators um, to ignore the polling. And in fact, when uh, the president was asked by Fox News's Peter Ducey about the New York Times Siena poll, he objected. He said, you guys only focus on one or two polls. Um, there are eight polls that show me leading Trump in swing states. That's not an exact quote, but it is the sentiment of what he said. And so I reached out to the White House. I reached out to the Biden campaign and they couldn't come up with eight polls that showed the president leading uh, Trump in swing states. They pointed us instead to four polls of three swing states showing uh, that Biden was up by you know one or two points or within the margin of error. I think that at this point, this far away from the November election next year, uh, they're going to put their head down. They're going to ignore the polls. And that is a conscious decision that they have made, which tracks with, with Biden generally saying, all right, all of my so-called friends say I can't do this. Well, I'll show them. You know, Biden needs young voters. He, you know, and, and this is not a problem that forgiving student loans and legalizing weed is going to solve. <laughs> that seems to have been the playbook so far, right? I'm not sure it's an age thing. I mean, again, it's like how, you know, because the, the young kids were like crazy for Bernie. I mean, just crazy for Bernie, right? And it's partly because of how Bernie wears his age versus how Biden wears his. But I think it's economic. I mean, it's just that the, you know, the price of, of rent and homes now, I mean, gas has come down a little bit and maybe inflation's come down, but, you know, mortgage rates are still really high. It's hard. It is hard for, it's hard for people who make a, a decent living, right, to make ends meet, let alone someone who's in that, you know, just out of college, got their first job trying to like, you know, get their, get their footing in the, in the, you know, real world, corporate world, whatever, and to be paying, you know, 50, 60% of their income to, to put a roof over their head. And so I think that's, I think that's a lot of what's driving the discontent among young voters. Could that change? Will that change in a year? Possibly, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a nagging issue that, um, that the administration is going to have to have to try and deal with. Um, and I suspect that in many ways, and we saw some, some commentary about this this week, right? In many ways, their argument is going to be to young voters and to everybody else, if it comes down to a, a race with Donald Trump is, you know, you may not like me, you may think I'm too old, you may, but look at that. You're really going to vote for that? That's, you know, the end of democracy. That's fascism. That's, you know, um, and they're just going to scare the living crap out of these young folks. <laughs> so we'll see if it works. Well, um, Phil, you had a piece on the RCP homepage about Chris Christie, about these numbers uh, that uh, Christie's banding about, saying that he's qualified for the fourth Republican debate scheduled for December 6th. Um, and, he, and he was in D.C. this week talking about foreign policy at the Hudson Institute. So what did he say and what is he saying about these numbers and uh, how is he viewing the Republican field right now? That's right, Andy. Chris Christie has sort of been muted on previous debate stages, but he showed up in Washington, D.C. this week to do two things. First, to offer a foreign policy critique of the entire field in more than 90-second intervals. And he uh, 
you know, took a blowtorch to all of these guys from Nikki Haley to Donald Trump to Ron DeSantis saying that they were fundamentally unserious. But the second thing, which is almost as important, is Christie made the claim that he has qualified for the fourth debate. Uh, we're you know, going to wait to pass judgment on that. His campaign says that he has met the 80,000 uh, donor threshold. There are still questions about whether or not he actually uh, qualifies according to the polls that his team has put forward. But if, in fact, what the Christie campaign says is true, that means that the biggest partisan brawler is going to remain on the debate stage, and he is going to remain a problem for Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis as they try and consolidate support ahead of a big push to try and wrestle away the nomination from Donald Trump. And is foreign policy really uh, his strong suit at this point? Because he he went to Israel. He's the only one who's gone. Uh, he's been to Ukraine. Um, he's sort of touting that as evidence that he is more qualified than the former UN ambassador to uh, conduct foreign policy. <laughs> yeah. And the former president right. of the yeah. United States. Yeah. Uh, so Christie not only went to Israel uh, after the third debate in Miami, he's also been to Ukraine. And his message to um, the Hudson Institute, which is a sort of right of center uh, foreign policy think tank, was that uh, you have a Republican Party that has embraced the new isolationism of Donald Trump, and that is not working. He defended our uh, involvement in Ukraine, saying that for 4% of the Pentagon budget, we've been able to downgrade the Russian military by 50%. He argued that the United States needed to stand with Israel. And afterwards, uh, you know, knowing that this isn't a guy who is necessarily famous for his foreign policy, I asked him what his definition of victory in Ukraine would be. And he told me that it was a return to the pre-2022 borders and that potentially the United States and and Ukraine would have to negotiate about whether or not the United States would support uh, pushing Russia back to their their pre-2014 borders. So he's quick with a soundbite. He was... uh, you know, pretty decent in attacking Nikki Haley for just saying finish them. He was pretty quick, you know, attacking Ron DeSantis as uh, just trying to sound like Donald Trump. Um, but on substance, I think at this next debate, um, he'll be pressed by the likes of, you know, Eliana Johnson of the Free Beacon and Elizabeth Vargas if he gets in. Phil said that Christie came to Washington to do two things. He actually did three. He went on Fox News and yelled at Fox News anchor woman for bringing up the real clear politics poll average. And he said the po- real clear politics poll average wasn't any good because it was a national poll and, and we, and it's an election state by state. Uh, and, and then he said, if you were listening carefully and I'm at 6% in the New Hampshire poll, I thought, Oh, great pal. <laughs> I really brag about that. So anyway, I urge our uh, listeners, if you haven't already Phil read Phil's piece this morning, he goes back and looks uh, Phil covered the the Hudson Institute speech, and then and then went back and looked at more closely the polls that uh, Christie is citing. He he may not get in. We'll see. It's an interesting thing going on. So you have Desantis and Haley are in. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is in. He 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 went after. He attacked the RNC chairwoman Rona McDaniel by name at the last debate. It's only these uh, the criterion that she set up that he's even on the stage. I mean, Christie's a two-term governor of a, of a blue state, you know, he, he obviously has earned the right to be there, but they've got these, they got, they, they decided they have to have some objective, non-subjective criterion. So uh, Vivek is there for sure. 
Christie's on the cusp. Well, Tom, uh, we mentioned Nikki Haley. We mentioned New Hampshire. There was an Emerson poll uh, shows Haley is now um, in second place in New Hampshire. Christie in third place. DeSantis running fourth, according to Emerson. Also showed that uh, this was I thought it was interesting. Haley is the only GOP candidate who would beat Biden in the state, uh, winning by six points. Trump would lose New Hampshire by five points. So, what do you make of the poll? And is uh, is Haley uh, on the move? Well, she's definitely on the move. There's no question about that. And we've seen, you know, she's spending $10 million in Iowa, New Hampshire over the next 70 days to to try and get herself ahead of Ron DeSantis in Iowa. And she's already ahead of him in New Hampshire um, and make herself the sort of clear second, I should say clear first alternative to Donald Trump. And we had not just the Emerson poll, there was a CNN poll that got released yesterday afternoon and showed the same thing. Basically, Haley at 20, um, which is the most she's had there, Christie at 14, and, and DeSantis at 9. So um, she's she's in a clear second place in New Hampshire. And um, you know, we'll see whether she's able to to generate some some momentum in Iowa. I mean, the problem is for both DeSantis and Haley is they're both gonna stay in through Iowa. They're both committed. And so it's going to be really hard because what you need in Iowa is you need one of two things. You need somebody, you know, somebody other than Donald Trump to win, or you need somebody to really beat expectations, right? And for Donald Trump, so just just imagine this scenario. So, you know, DeSantis is at 17% in Iowa, Haley's at 14%, Trump's at 47. I'm just going to throw out an example, but if Donald Trump underperforms his numbers, so he comes in, let's say at 40 and Ron DeSantis overperforms, doubles his, you know, gets within five points of him, say gets to 35. So you have, you have overperformance, massive overperformance by DeSantis and underperformance by Donald Trump. Suddenly you've got a narrative that Donald Trump's weak. Ron DeSantis is on the move, you know, and, and off you go from Iowa. He doesn't have to win, but he has to get close enough and if Donald Trump underperforms, then you've got the narrative that Trump is weak, he's not as strong, he's, he's you know he's got a lower floor. The problem is it's hard to see how that's going to happen if Haley stays in the race or vice versa. If DeSantis doesn't get out, you know, w- even all the rest of the folks combined, if they got every single one of those votes from Tim Scott and Ramaswamy and Christie and Bergam, wouldn't get them to the you know the the number that they need. And so with the two of them both staying in in Iowa. It's most likely going to be even if Trump underperforms and gets to forty, um, you know, if you've got Haley and DeSantis both at fifteen, that's a twenty-five point win for Donald Trump. Yeah, but that's that's a caucus state, Tom. Then it would go to New Hampshire, and that would really make New Hampshire very important. Okay, theoretically, theoretically, I mean, I just don't know that you can. If Donald Trump wins Iowa by twenty-five points, that that you know that makes it that much harder. Uh, for for an upset to happen in New Hampshire, I, I'm not saying it's not possible, and I think Haley is she is rising and she's getting some, you know, Ken Griffin's talking about giving her a bunch of money and some other, you know, the billionaire class is kind of looking at her and and thinking that she might be the best option. And by the way, this Fox News poll that came out had I think Donald Trump beating Biden by two, DeSantis beating Biden by one, and Nikki Haley was winning by eleven points. 5241 to Biden, which is pretty astonishing when you think about it. Well, and let's one other thing I'll say about Haley. We talked about this last week, but Phil Phil points out that these evangelicals want to fight her. 
And and this was if if you and people it, Republicans didn't know Haley well. It, you know, she was governor of South Carolina, then she was UN ambassador. But those are not there's no reason she's really willing to throw a punch, and she can take one too. And so if you're looking for a fighter, there's no reason not to. There's no reason to rule out Nikki Haley. Well, other than Donald Trump, and I guess you know evangelicals like Donald Trump too. But like you know, she's the one who's talking about compromise on abortion. DeSantis is the one who who. On that issue and on no, cultural I'm, I'm issues not talking in general, about the, Tom, Tom, I'm not talking about the issues. I'm talking about temperament. I was just making the single point that if 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 you're a battler, if they're looking for that, she certainly qualifies. That's all I'm saying. So, Phil, getting back to Christie for a second, and uh, and, and Nikki Haley, um, this is what he said uh, at uh, Hudson. He said, "When Nikki Haley believes that just saying over and over again finish them in regard to Hamas is a foreign policy, she can't be taken seriously. She needs to provide the next four sentences after that, which I'm sure she is able to do. But <laughs> is this kind of fighting among the sort of?" Everyone trying to be that sort of alternative to Trump. I mean, how damaging is that to, to uh, Nikki Haley? Or does anyone take that seriously at this point? The Haley campaign declined to comment when I reached out with uh, Chris Christie's statements about the former ambassador to the United Nations. I think that sort of signals how seriously they are taking him. And the the interesting- At least she didn't call him scum. <laughs> at least she didn't call him scum. Maybe Chris Christie will have to talk about uh, TikTok at the next debate to get a rise out of her. Um, the thing about Christie is that he was billed as this brawler who could cut campaigns down at the knees. And certainly Marco Rubio will dispute this, but he did a lot to end that Florida Republicans um, rise in, in 2015 and 2016. We haven't seen the same thing from Christie thus far. I think he's been, um, you know, sort of suffering from these high expectations that he's going to be the guy who can just, you know, destroy another candidate on stage with a quick sound bite. And he did a little bit of that to Vivek Ramaswamy. But thus far, Christie has been kind of muted. And the thing that's working against him currently is the fact that that Chris Christie, I mean, we we reported this uh, immediately after the 2020 election. Chris Christie is going to Republicans on Capitol Hill referring to Donald Trump as his friend. And so for the last couple of years, there's been this strange sort of penance tour where Christie, who was a longtime friend of Donald Trump, a close advisor, is suddenly explaining why he turned on him and why that conversion happened after January 6th, well after January 6th. So uh, I think that voters are saying, all right, well, you, you praised the guy when there was something in it for you, but they might be skeptical of, of his uh, opposition to the former president now. Well, you know what? I think we're going to leave it right there. Um, I want to thank Carl Cannon, uh, Tom Bevan, Phil Wigman. We're here most Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, so bookmark this podcast. Come back often. As ever, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Uh, Chris Christie, that might be Phil Wigman's pieces. We'll find out. <laughs> My pieces are reported, so if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, right. Tony Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> I am journalism. Uh, thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.